You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you are able to remain standing, turn with me to Genesis chapter 31. We're going to finish this glorious chapter, Lord willing, this morning. If you're not accustomed to reading publicly large portions of Scripture, you will be at the end of this service. But if you need to sit down for any reason, uh, feel free to do so. We're going to pick up in Genesis 31, beginning in verse 22, and we'll move through the end of the chapter to verse 55. This is God's holy word now. When he was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead. Verse 26, and Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is within my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Verse 31, Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Verse 36, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. For from my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. 
There I was by day. The heat consumed me, the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban verse 43 answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these, my daughters and for their children whom they have been or have born come now, let us make a covenant you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jehar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Verse 51, then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I may not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread and they ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, verse 55, Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and we return again to chapter 31 in this great history of redemption. We find ourselves, as I said last week, in the patriarchal section of Genesis. That is the section where Moses, our author, is detailing the history of one people, one nation, the nation of Israel. To this point, we've learned about the life and legacy of Abraham. We've learned about the life and legacy of Isaac, his son. And all that the Lord did to preserve them and to protect his people. And now we find ourselves this morning right in the middle of Jacob's story. Jacob is the younger of Isaac's two sons and the third of the three major patriarchs in Israel's history. At this point in the story, Jacob has two wives, Rachel and Leah. It's not God's design or God's doing, but came as a result of impatience. He has to this point, Jacob and Leah and his and Rachel have 11 sons and one daughter. Jacob has worked for his overbearing and money loving father-in-law for now 20 years. 
Beyond that, the Lord has made it clear to Jacob that it is time for Jacob to return to the land of Canaan, to the house of his father. This is a major turning point in the book of Genesis. Jacob has now left for Padan Aram, has acquired a wife and a family, and is turning back now to the land of Canaan. And so we ended our time last week looking at Jacob's great escape. His great escape from the prying hands of Laban. And on their way out, we learn that Rachel, Rachel steals some household gods from her father, Laban, as a last ditch effort to capture some of his riches that she felt entitled to. And as we pick up in the story this morning, we find out that Laban hears of Jacob's secret departure. And we come to find out that he is aware that the household gods are also missing. And so Laban is furious. And so I've entitled the first scene this morning, and there are two main scenes that I've discovered in this text. The first is pursuits and disputes. Pursuits and disputes. That's the first main scene. The second main scene is the covenant made between Jacob and Laban. And then at the end, we'll, we'll try to make some application for us this morning. But first, pursuits and disputes. Look at verse 22, verses 22 and 23. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he, that is Laban, took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. Laban is thundering after Jacob with bad intentions. We know that because the, ver- the verb pursued there in verse 22 is a militaristic word. He's pursuing Jacob with bad intentions. Laban is out for blood and treasure. He's furious. But Laban is not the only one in hot pursuit. Notice what verse 24 reveals. Verse 24 says, but God came to Laban, but God came to Laban, the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So Laban takes off after Jacob, but then God takes off after Laban. You'll remember God did a similar thing when King Abimelech was going to take Sarah, Abraham's wife, to be his own wife. God shows up in a dream to Abimelech. This is Genesis chapter 20, verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is another man's wife. And so here again, God gives a grim yet gracious warning to Laban as he pursues Jacob. God is saying essentially to Laban, Laban, you're out of your depth here. You do not know whose you are pursuing. Jacob is out of your jurisdiction. You may not say anything good or bad to him, which is a Hebraic way to say you may not exercise authority over mine. Jacob belongs to me, not you. You can't say anything good or bad to him. He's mine. Of course, at this point, Jacob has no clue that God is intervening for him. 
Like us today, God, Jacob rather, is unaware that while he rests his little head in his little tent in Gilead, God is thwarting the schemes of his enemy. Well, Laban finally catches up with Jacob and the pursuit gives way to dispute. And the dispute between Laban and Jacob is unparalleled in all the Bible. This dispute lasts the longest in the Old Testament, and it is the most furious dispute that we have in Holy Scripture. Look at verse 25. The dispute begins. And Laban overtook Jacob, another militaristic term. He overtook him. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban, his kinsman, pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Just real quick, Laban is so dramatic. (laughs) He's so dramatic. And you can just, I mean, in my mind as I'm reading this, I'm just, I'm picturing the, you know, this, you know, people playing the violin while Laban goes, "You, you took my daughters by the sword. So listen to how dramatic Laban gets. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? I'll show you a liar, layman. Verse 28, and why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. Now stop for a moment. Tambourines. Tambourines were not on the heart of Laban when Jacob said he wanted to leave. On the heart of Laban was money, possession, flocks. Remember in our time together last week, Laban never mentioned Rachel or Leah or his grandbabies or tambourines or mirth or whatever else he's cooking up in this exchange. Laban from day one has been worried about possessions. And so he's blowing smoke again. Laban continues, look at verse 29. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night. Highlight that. The God of your father spoke to me. Our God speaks. And he said, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now verse 30, Laban goes on. Now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house. And then here it is. But why did you steal my gods? There's the real reason. Why did you steal my gods? Let me sort of last thing I want to cover. Why did you steal my gods? That's the real reason Laban is in hot pursuit. His valuable household gods. In the Hebrew, it's the teraphim. These would have been, in this case, small statues. We find out that Rachel hides these small statues in a, in a satchel and sits on them. They would have been small. They would have been probably have, of high monetary value. They would have had high religious significance, certainly. And this, again, of course, is the real reason why Laban is in hot pursuit, along with his pride being trampled because Jacob's secret escape. It's these idols 
that Laban is after. And the suspense builds in the story. The reader, only the reader knows that Rachel has stolen these household gods. Jacob doesn't even know that Rachel has stolen the household gods. And so Laban says, can I issue a search warrant? And, and Jacob says, sure, search whatever you want. And by the way, whoever has stolen your idols, you can, you can execute them. You can kill them. But, Ra- but Jacob doesn't know that Rachel is the one that has stolen them. And the suspense continues to build. Laban checks all of the tents and doesn't find them. And then he gets to the final tent, Rachel's tent. Look at verse 33 and following. So, verse 33, Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and in the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel, verse 34, had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent. In the Hebrew, I won't try to translate it because I'll get an email from Mitch later, but it's, he's, he's groping. He's groping in the dark. Like, like a blind man who's trying to find something, but groping in the dark. That's this idea. He's, he's searching about. He, he felt about the tent, but did not find them. Verse 35, and she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. So Rachel is Laban's daughter. The apple does not fall far from the tree. She is quick to think on her feet or while she's sitting. Rachel, in other words, out Labaned Laban. She thinks fast and she's able to keep the idols hidden. She very well could have been in the way of women, but she hid the household gods beneath her. And as a result of Jacob's perceived vindication, Jacob erupts with anger. This is an eruption of 20 years of pent-up frustration from a helicopter father-in-law. You've heard of a helicopter parent? There are also helicopter in-laws, right? And Laban is like the chief of them all. He is overbearing. He is, he is money hungry. And for 20 years, Jacob has been wanting to say what he is about to say. And so Jacob pops off in verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. In the Hebrew, he burned hot with anger. And he said, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? And then he goes on. We're not going to cover all of it, but jump down to verse 41. These 20 years, verse 41, these 20 years, I have been in your house. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. (laughs) Have you ever had that sort of cathartic moment when you could tell your boss how you really felt? This is Jacob in that moment. Not not excusing his behavior. It's understandable, not permissible. You've changed my wages 10 times. 
Verse 42, if the flock of my father, oh, if the God of my father, excuse me, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. He got it all off his chest. And you would think Laban, having not found the household gods, having searched about all the tents, you know he was taking his time. You would think that Laban would be a bit humbled, maybe even a little contrite. Maybe he'd step back a little bit in the argument, knowing that he has no evidence to support his, his anger. But he doesn't. He's Laban. He has more in the tank. Look at verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine. (laughs) I don't know about you, but if you're in an argument where you're clearly losing and you know it, this happens 99% of the time in arguments in my home against my wife, where I know I'm about to lose this thing. My flesh just wants to have one final last word, right? And it's usually ridiculous. <laughs> if, I, if I haven't won the argument, if I think, if I just say it loud enough and with enough anger and I sort of dominate the conversation, if I have the last word, then I've won. This is Laban's thinking. Laban gets to the end of it. He knows he's, he's, he's outworked here. And he just says, everything's mine. <laughs> uh, the daughters are mine. The children are mine. All of the flocks are mine. There. Like a, like a, chi- like a child. Mine. Everything is mine. Laban, after the pursuit and the dispute, is left empty-handed and humiliated. The only thing he's gained is more exhaustion. He's not leaving with his herds. He's not leaving with his household gods. He's not leaving with his family. He's leaving exhausted and humiliated. Hot pursuits lead to heated disputes. And now our second scene is a covenant is made. A ceasefire agreement is struck. Surprisingly, Laban pivots drastically in verse 44. He knows he's beat. Laban says, come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. Now, this is quite amazing, this pivot. This is the same Laban who we just have heard has swindled 14 years of service out of Jacob by switching his own daughters on their wedding night. I mean, that is as low as it gets. This is the same Laban now who swindled six more years from Jacob by removing the multicolored flock from his herd. And now it's this Laban who wants to be a bigger man and make a covenant. Come now, you and me, let's make a covenant together. Now that I've said everything's mine. Well, Jacob is not going to pass on this opportunity and Jacob is also not going to let this agreement go unnoticed. Jacob is going to make a big deal about this peace agreement. Look at verse 45. 
So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And then Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. Now, I don't know what the estimates are, but Jacob at this point has got a lot of kinsmen, which means he's going to have a lot of stones. Everybody go grab a stone. And they took the stones and they made a heap, a pile of rocks. And they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jehar Zehadutha, which is Aramaic. It means a heap of witness. It's a heap of witness. Jacob called it Gilead, Hebrew, for the same thing. A heap of witness. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Now notice Laban did not say, let's make the heap. It was Jacob, but Laban's going to act like it's his doing. This is my heap. Now, now, now let's, let me use this as an illustration now, Jacob. The Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although nobody is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. This is, this is a covenant technically in, in, he, in a Hebrew understanding. They're about to sacrifice. They're about to cut a covenant. An animal's blood is going to be spilt. But this is a, a, a glorified ceasefire, a non-compete clause between Laban and Jacob. A heap of stones separate the two leaders. Jacob, or rather Laban thinks that he's doing Jacob a favor. But the reality is Laban ought to know better than anyone else that Jacob does not need this covenant for safety. The God of his father has been with him this entire time. Laban knows God showed up to Laban in a dream and said, don't do anything to him. But Laban is still blinded by his own ambition. Do you know that about ambition? Ambition is a good thing, but unbridled, it's blinding. You lose good judgment with unbridled ambition. And Laban is untethered. He's unbridled. And he can't see straight. And so Laban thinks that this is going to be good for you, Jacob. When the reality is the opposite is the same. This is Laban. Laban is helped by this covenant. Nevertheless, a ceasefire is agreed upon. The two leaders are able to keep the peace. They're not making peace. They're keeping the peace. Then Laban, verse 51, said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar. He says it again, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. And then as we close, look at verse 53 something very telling emerges. Laban is continuing. This is Laban's grand speech here. He says in verse 53, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So 
Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, or literally the God whom his father fears. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban rose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Laban says he invokes two gods. The God of Abraham, that's Jacob's God. And the God of Nahor, an Egyptian deity. So clearly, this is not news. Laban is not a God-fearing man. He's a pagan. He's a polytheist. He, he, he recognizes there are multiple gods. And so in this great covenant that, that Laban has invoked, he invokes two gods just to cover his bases. The God of Israel and the God of Egypt. It's not surprising, this is not news, it's not breaking news that Laban is a pagan and not a follower of Yahweh. But I want to highlight the differences because there is an invaluable principle embedded throughout this whole story. And this verse uncovers it for us. It seems clear to me that Moses in this story... In these verses that we just read and this entire story, Moses wants us, the reader, to capture a clear contrast between Jacob's God and these idols being chased down by Laban. The gods of Laban, the god of the pagan who who believes in multiple gods, these, these idols could be stolen. They were stolen. They were hidden and they were manipulated. These household gods don't hear. They can't see and they can't speak. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 135, we read it in our call to worship. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Do you see how Laban is becoming like the gods that he's chasing after? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shows up to Laban in a dream and speaks to him. And Laban is undeterred. He can't see, he can't hear, just like the gods that he is after. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. However, here's the contrast. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jacob is exactly everything these idols could not be. The God of Jacob is the true and living God. He cannot be hidden. He cannot be stolen. He cannot be manipulated. He will not be manipulated. The God of Jacob sees and he speaks and he listens 
and he will be found by those who seek him. When Laban was searching around in Rachel's tent, again, Moses describes Laban as one who is groping in the dark, desperately looking for something that cannot deliver, desperately trying to find something that cannot save, a spiritually blind man looking for a blind and mute idol. If this is not an illustration of humanity, I don't know what is. Spiritually blind, groping around for idols that are actually blind and can't see and can't help. Oh, but this is so primitive. We're in the 21st century. We don't have household gods that we can carve up and put in satchels and sit on them. Oh, we're not so advanced. At the end of the day, to some degree, Laban's story is all of our story. Laban's story. Laban. How so? Well, we were out chasing after idols that could not save, while at the same time, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was chasing after us. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this morning you're enamored by some chase. Some chase has got you going. It gets you up at night or in the morning, rather. Keeps you up at night, gets you up in the morning. What is that? What is that thing that keeps you up at night and gets you up early in the morning? What is that thing that occupies your time and your affections when no one else knows about it? Maybe it's an income that you can finally write home about. Maybe it's vocational success that you're after with all your heart, finally self-employed, Maybe it's academic achievement, finally getting published. Maybe it's familiar, familial, finally getting married, finally having the relationship, finally having children. The question is, what is your chase this morning? Of course, in themselves, all of these things are not bad desires. They're not. That's what makes them dangerous. That's what makes them really deployable by the enemy because they're, they're good. But if they're ultimate, they will be blind, deaf, and mute. And they will not help you when you need them most. I've shared this story with you before. My grandfather was my greatest hero ever. Uh, my dad left when I was six and my grandfather stepped in, in remarkable ways. And he's a, he, he was a pioneer. He was an industry man. He was a newspaper man and he built an empire. He became wildly successful at what he did and he became independent 
I saw my grandfather for all of my life not needing anything from anyone. And any sort of handout, if anybody would ever give him something, he would just, oh, I don't, I don't take, I only give. He was my biggest hero, and I still miss him every day. The last months of his life were the hardest single thing I've had to witness in my entire life. What I saw was a collection of blind, mute, and deaf idols that could not come through for my grandfather when he needed them most. It destroyed him. It mocked him. And I praise God every day, not that it happened, but that I saw it happen. God did a miracle in my heart to detach my talons from these same things. Oh, they still creep up in ministry. It's even more dangerous in ministry, probably. So what are you chasing after? What are you chasing after? Think about that day that's coming. Which one of these things that you're after that is occupying your thoughts at night and getting you up in the morning, which ones will deliver you when you need them most? Brothers and sisters, I thank God every day that we do not serve a God who remains hidden. God doesn't play games. In fact, Jeremiah 29, and we close here, 29 verses 12 through 14. God is speaking. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Notice the attributes of God. He hears us. You will seek me and find me. The God of Israel says, when you seek me with all of my heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. He is not playing games. This is not some theological game. For those who seek him, he will be found. He's not like a household God that can be hidden under a camel's satchel. And I will deliver you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the places from which I sent you in exile. He is a rescuing God and he is on mission and he will be found. When Rachel sat on those household gods during her way of women, she would have made those idols ceremonially unclean. And whether she realized it or not, probably not. As another author writes, Rachel, quote, foreshadowed the despoiling of Egyptian gods during the plagues of Egypt. 
whether Rachel knew it or not, she was actually foreshadowing how God's people would treat all Egyptian gods from then on out. Unclean. Worthless idols. Unclean and unhelpful. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. So again, what are you chasing this morning? What are you chasing? What, what is gripping your heart? As a Christian, I'm not just talking about non-Christians. As a Christian, what, is, what species of idol is creeping up? As Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories. We just make them really well. What is that? What is the chase this morning for you? Listen, Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of the God who will not be hidden. Jesus Christ is the greatest revelation of God to man. The heavens opened and God the Son came down. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the God who will not be hidden from his people. He tabernacled among us. He wasn't hidden in a tent. He became the tent and he became one of us. Why? So we would know for sure what the God of Israel is like. He's the ultimate example of the God who will not be hidden. In fact, Christ quotes Jeremiah 29 himself. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Who talks like that? The God of the universe talks like that. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to say that now for everybody. Unlike worthless idols, Christ engaged the world. He saw it. He heard our cry. He touched our wounds. I was going through the gospel of Mark the other day with a brother. We're going through the gospel of Mark and and Jesus touches the leper. He touches the leper. What God does that? Will your success in life, whatever that is, touch the leper for you? He touched the leopard. He sees, he hears, he feels. Jesus is moved with compassion for the multitude because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God to us. He is the fullest example of the God who will not be hidden. He touches our wounds. But ultimately... It would be through his wounds that we would be healed. Christ was punished as if he was unclean. As if he was a spoiled God, little g. So that we could be made clean. And the covenant he cut would also be a ceasefire. But it was through his blood that we would, he would make peace with God for us. If it was a heap of stones that separated Laban and Jacob, it was a wall of hostility that separated us from God. And Christ comes to take down the wall of hostility, to be the God who will not be hidden, the God who touches, the God who sees, the God who hears his people. Let me read Ephesians 2 and then we'll, 
will be done. Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace. That is Jesus. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself in himself one new man in place of the two. A new Adam has come. So making peace, not keeping the peace, not shoving things under the rug, not a ceasefire, not a non-compete clause, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Praise be to God. By the mercies of God, may we delight ourselves in the true God of Israel, our true refuge, our true protection, and our only comfort in life and in death.